0: All right, welcome. Watch this awkwardness as I try to mess with the podium. Um, welcome to RUF. Let me pass out the sign up sign-up sheet. If you've signed up already, uh, please don't sign up again unless you want two emails, um, which I'm sure all of you want at this point in the semester. Um, so, my name is Sid <laughs> Uh Good evening. <laughs> How are we doing? Okay. Um, that good, this is going to be a great, I can feel it, feel the energy rippling, the first large group and we're already silent, that's awesome. Um, so, second week of school, better than the first, by far, especially if you're a freshman, it's got to be a little easier, learning the names of buildings, class hasn't changed rooms yet, hopefully we feel okay about this. If you're in doubt, just like aim towards chambers. That's always a a good idea. Um, So as I said, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the pastor for RUF, uh, which is Reformed University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry uh, for Davidson College that exists uh, to, let me tell you a few things. For the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the overachiever and the underachiever, For the student who's building a grassroots movement to refresh the world through a PowerPoint, Indonesian handicrafts, and a Kickstarter campaign. And for the student who is already giving up, who's winded, they've had a week of homework, it's hopeless. And so... There you are, two-fisting Candy Crush Saga on the one hand, and then binge-watching Scandal on the other. That's your life right now, and that's okay. Welcome. Okay, REF exists for those who who want to ponder in their hearts the truths of Christ, and also for those of you who aren't really sure what to think or even to ponder about Jesus and who he is. So, in other words, whoever you are and wherever you are, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. Um, we just hope that you get to know RUF and RUF gets to know you. Um, and especially if you're new, I know that can be really hard to come into a situation, especially if you didn't have a buddy system going on. So thanks for the time, the effort, and we hope that you kind of get to know some of, the, some of the folks involved in RUF, which really just sort of the people who are awkwardly laughing would be a good sign um, of the people that are there, Okay. So um, this semester in large group, this is what we're doing now. We're discussing the letter to the Hebrews, which Peter just read from us, from us to us, uh, from the Bible. Okay, and this is actually a really interesting letter. We don't really know the author. We don't really know the audience. That kind of makes it hard for a letter, right? Okay, and then we we do know that it's in the second half of the Bible, which is commonly referred to as the New Testament. Um, in fact, in Hebrews, we learn the origin of the word testament. I think it's about week six, and I think week six needs a little <laughs> plug, a little teaser, because about week six gets a little rough. So if you just want to hold on tight for that, you're welcome to. Okay? But in the meantime, let's face it, Hebrews is a very difficult book. It's a very difficult book. One scholar says Hebrews is one of the most bracing and challenging writings in the New Testament. Okay? Another commentator adds, it must be acknowledged that there are many things in this epistle hard to be understood. I mean, he said hard to be understood. That's hard, I mean, it's already hard to understand. So think about it this way. There's going to be a reading comprehension challenge to Hebrews, but also it gets better. Hebrews is about an emotionally diffi- difficult topic. Okay? Here's the question that Hebrews is talking about. Why is life... Particularly the Christian life, why is it so challenging? Why is it so hard? Have you ever asked yourself that question? That's what the audience, the Hebrews, are asking themselves. Okay? If God loves us so much, why does our world seethe with suffering? If God loves us so much, why doesn't knowing Jesus make our lives easier? Why does it sometimes even make our lives harder? So by now, you might have to be asking yourself, all right, Sid, why are we studying this book? (laughs) I mean, my life's already challenging. My life is already busy. And I get weary sometimes. So you're telling me that I'm going to get more of that every Tuesday night. (laughs) Well, my response is this. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly why we're studying the book. I'm convinced, and I hope you'll be convinced too, that Hebrews has the letters that we need to hear. We need to hear these words. Because our lives can be tiring and exhausting. And they can be challenging, and they can be busy. And, and look, even at the beginning of the semester, okay, when E.H.'s little library feels fresh, they change, you know, you're not tired of it yet, you've got your carol, you've sharpened your pencils... You think, this is the year or the semester that I'm going to read all of the pages of my reading. Okay? Um, you've got a plan, and you're working the plan. It's week two, and you're there. Okay, even then, sometimes we need to hear what Hebrews is telling us. Okay? You see, I love what Hebrews does. Literally, Hebrews doesn't paint over our problems with sweet nothings. Okay? It doesn't promise us what, our, what this life cannot possibly deliver. Okay? It doesn't give easy, automatic, or instant answers to life's hard questions. So it's a great book to study, whether you're trying to be a Christian here at Davidson, or whether you're just not sure about Christianity in general, and you just want to know what it's all about. So in addition to its honesty about how life doesn't always feel like it's working, the letter to the Hebrews is also deeply pastoral. It's great counsel to the depths of our being amidst our fears and our discouragements, right? It celebrates the ways that life can shimmer with friends and achievements and purpose, but it also points to the rest when we're weary, to community when we feel lonely, and to God's presence when we feel spiritually estranged. All of these thoughts go into the title and the theme for our study of the Hebrews this semester, which is struggling to believe. Struggling to believe. I mean, if we're honest, and I hope we can be honest here, we struggle to believe. Look, I have a mortgage. I have a minivan. I have children and mouths to feed. And my whole, I'm religiously professional. And I struggle to believe. Okay? Now... I bet we're all kind of wrestling with what that looks like. Some of us are nervous. We're new to Davidson. Some of us are nervous because we've been here to Davidson before. And some of us are just really excited to be back because summer was so boring. Okay? And some of us are so busy. It was actually busier than the school year because your internship was that cool and amazing. Okay? But, look, Hebrews is a letter that ministers to us in all of these different situations, to all of our doubts and to all of our person, to all of our questions, hard, easy, and light. And whether these questions and these doubts are small and off in the distance or large and pressing down on us. So with that kind of introduction to the topic, to the book, let's pray and we'll get started looking at this passage, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 6. Okay, Would you pray with me? Father... um... I appreciate all the people in this room. Uh, I'm so thankful that you drew them here, Um, whether they're curious about Christianity and they feel like they're just visiting, um, or whether uh, they're committed to Christ and they're asking for a time to rest, a time to savor your truths. I pray, Jesus, that you would show up. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us. I pray that Christ would be more believable and more beautiful as a result of our time studying God's word together. I pray that all of the awkwardness, which is my spiritual gift, would, um, would, would need the gospel into our hearts. That we would hear Jesus speak to us. Right now, right here, with fluorescence buzzing in a back room, shifting who knows what. Um, I pray that you would meet us in this room right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, look, so we don't know much about the original audience of Hebrews, right? We don't know the exact location. But we do know this. We know their mindset. Not surprisingly, they're struggling to believe in Jesus. Okay, It's just a few years, and just a few years, right, in, in the mid-1960s, oh, 60s AD, they're going to be... Felt like it back then. It was a groovy time with Nero. Um, so... Look, in the the mid-60s AD, they're going to be outright persecuted. They're on the cusp of it, right? Eventually, Christians will be blamed for the great fire of Rome. They will be tied up to giant sticks and set on fire to be torches for Nero's garden parties. That's going to happen in just a few years, and they can feel it. Okay? They already feel a subtle but unrelenting pressure on their faith. The Romans have just declared Christianity a separate religion. It's no longer an exotic subsect of Judaism. And that seems great, right? Emancipation, proclamation. But the reality is, look, that actually means that Christianity is free to be prosecuted and persecuted. And it already has been under Claudius. And so there's this slow, gaining, tightening pressure on the Christian community. Whether it's in Rome or Judea uh, Judea and Jerusalem, we don't know. But we know that the Roman Empire is squeezing in On this community. But, you know, most of the pressure pressure is actually coming from the inside. They want a more Jewish and less Jesus-y Christianity. They want a Christianity that looks more attractive. Right? They want old, majestic, ivy-covered, socially responsible and acceptable Christianity. A Christianity that reminds people in the Roman Empire of Judaism. That's what they're longing for. Look, Judaism has angels. Everyone wants angels instead of a carpenter, right? There's so much. They've got big wings. And they're huge, and they have awesome stories in the Old Testament. What? What about the carpenter? Okay, some guy in the middle of nowhere who washes people's feet. That's not classy. That's sort of what they're they're asking themselves. That's what they're talking about. Okay, but let me kind of help you situate the original audience in Davidson terms, and they're gonna it's gonna be outlandish. The Hebrew Christians feel conflicted about their academics. The student next to them in humanities class just every week continues to call Jesus a ghost. And just last week he implied that, yes, he's a ghostbuster. And the Christians have no idea what to do with that neighbor. Is that a challenge? Or is that some sort of joke? And then the Hebrews feel like wet blankets down the hill at court parties. It's hot, it's stuffed, it's loud, it's sweaty, right? And it smells like pee-pee on the porch. And they feel like Jesus is this awkward little brother tagging along and making socially inappropriate comments all the time that no one wants to hear. And finally, they just want to shave off the offensive parts of Christianity. Why did Jesus have to say that whole thing about being the only way, truth, and life? Why is that the first thing people on my hall talk about when we talk about Christianity? This is what the Hebrews audience in Davidson terms is wondering. So I want you to actually place yourself in the shoes of the author of this letter. What would you write to them? How would you start your letter? Okay, Dear squirming Christian... Right, no you would what would you tell them that they're struggling? What do they need? What advice would you give them Tuesday morning, Wednesday night, or with their friends? My guess is that you and I probably would not start a letter like the letter to the Hebrews, okay Maybe we would offer an elaborate discipleship plan or a philosophical treatise, or maybe a few clever lines they can use in class, or down the hill, or in the lounge. But that's not what the Bible offers. The Bible is offering, in this letter, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's a long, detailed explanation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And look, we're getting what we need. We're getting an unflinching portrait of a naked Middle Eastern man on a cross. Look, it's eloquent, yes. But let's not skip the fact that it's an up close and personal and uncomfortable picture of someone who died like a slave without a crown but of thorns. It's like that Edgar Allan Poe story, right? You heard that, the purloined letter, the first detective mystery, apparently. Okay, The police have scoured the hotel room and they're looking for the. The contraband letter—the letter that's going to blackmail this woman—and it's actually a minister, which I find offensive. But anyway, we can move on. Okay, <laughs> my own personal drama somewhere else. Okay, so look—they searched behind the wallpaper, they looked under the carpet, they got the microscopes out, they've got the pin prick probes, and they've gone through the cushions. They're looking for this letter desperately. The whole police force can't find it, right? And then Detective Dupont. Right Is that how you say it? Um, so comes in and discovers the letter. And where is the letter? It's hidden in plain sight. right? It's turned reversed and scuffed up a little bit, but there it is in the letter rack. Right? Have you guys heard this story? Sorry, I just ruined it. Okay Don't, don't watch the movie. Um, Look. Like, our passage tonight in Hebrews is like that Poe short story. It's telling us that the deepest truths are often hidden in plain sight. Okay, The deepest truths are often hidden in plain sight. The letter of the Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 quiets our doubts and quiets our impatience with a deep and subtly simple truth. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, study the way that he speaks to us, the way he sustains us, and the way he scrubs us clean. So fix your eyes on Jesus, study the way he speaks to us, the way he sustains us, and the way he scrubs us clean. Our passage tonight describes Jesus in these three ways, exactly. So first we're going to discuss how Jesus speaks to us i we're going to look at the beginning and the ending of the passage, verses 1 and 2, and then 5 and 6. Second, we're going to look at how Jesus sustains us, and that's going to be in verse 3. And then third, we're going to discuss how Jesus scrubs us clean, and that's in verses 3 and 4. That's on your handout, by the way. There's an outline there uh, if you want to follow along. Let's begin with the first thing, which is how Jesus speaks to us. By looking at the beginning of the passage, Verses 1 and 2 in the end of the passage verse verses 5 and 6. Okay? Here's, the, here's a really interesting thing. This is a letter, but there's no greeting. Right? He doesn't write to anybody. He just starts straight off. Okay, why is that? You know, there's there's no sort of introduction, like, hey, I'm so-and-so, like say Paul, and I'm writing to you the blanks, okay, like say the Corinthians. And I wish for you these Christian virtues, and listing them off like peace, hope, grace, gratitude, whatever. Right? He doesn't do that. Why? There's instead this sense of urgency. Let's get right to the point. Let's get right to Jesus Christ. Right to what you all need in the middle of your struggle. But notice that, like, when he starts talking about Jesus, he doesn't start talking about like how he's really strong and how he could take out the Romans. He starts by talking about his speech, that Jesus speaks. Isn't that unusual? Again, is this where you would start your letter if you were writing to these people? I like the way that the pastor Ray Cortez puts it. God's speech by his son is telling us that God exists and he's present. But more importantly, it's telling us that he is not silent. And that he wants a relationship with us. He's pursuing his people. He's initiating contact. He's breaking the space between, that silent space between us and God. God is initiating. What's fascinating is that Hebrews describes this initiation, God's speech, in a historical process. It's a procession of many and various people in many and various times that kind of comes to a crescendo or a climax and builds this sweet simplicity. It's settled in one person, Jesus, right? And in one mode, scripture, one place scripture. It goes from many speakers, many places, to one speaker, and one place. What was once all over the place and piecemeal is now unified and self-contained. And that's the point of these first two verses. And this is two meanings for us. These are two quick, well, semi-quick applications. Here's the first one. The Bible is where God primarily speaks to us. The Bible's where God primarily speaks to us. We see this in the way that the letter to the Hebrews talks about Jesus in verses 5 and 6. Do you see that? Look at how the author of the Hebrews introduces all these quotations. He quotes Psalm 2, he quotes 2 Samuel 7, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, right? And he introduces each of these quotes with what? Some variation of the phrase, God speaks. God speaks. So Hebrews is showing us how God usually speaks. He usually speaks in his scripture. Now maybe, some of that, maybe that's not unfamiliar to some of you, but it's really profound and here's why. This means that the Bible is where we seek God's voice out. It's not in the rustling of leaves in a forest. Do you want to know? Do you want God to speak? Do you want to know what he's saying to you right here, right now, personally? The first place we look is scripture. The first place we look is the Bible. Even this letter to the Hebrews is an example of God speaking to us, not just to the original audience, but to us, the audience of the Scripture. This means this. Whether you call yourself a Christian, whether you don't really feel like that's a comfortable title for you, okay, we have to do business with the Bible. We have to do business with Scripture. We have to wrestle with whether it's actually the words of God or not, Right? Look, you might think that's silly. You might think that's obvious. But we have to be in that place with it. Okay? You might think, but Sid, it was made by human hands. And I would say, so was your lunch. But I would also say that your lunch comes from God. Okay? Just because he uses means doesn't mean he isn't behind it. Just because he uses the Union Cafe to feed us doesn't mean that he's not behind the Union Cafe and food trucks and factories and farmers and fields. Okay? Okay? Look, if the Bible is the infinite and eternal God's words to us, if it's his cosmic baby talk, as John Calvin calls it, to us, then studying the Bible means everything. It means everything. But if the Bible doesn't contain God's words to us, then scholars like Bertrand Russell, uh, Richard Dawkins are right. God hasn't given us enough conclusive evidence to know basic facts of life to know who he is, to know who we are, to know what's right and what's wrong. (laughs) If the Bible contains God's words to us, it also changes the way that we pray. And this is so fascinating, okay? So if you're a Christian and you've been like, yeah, 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 I want you to hear this, because I I doubt many of you do this. Prayer is not starting a conversation with God. It doesn't go, "Ah, ah, God, are you listening? I've got a to-do list. Ready? Go! Okay, and then you list off your your to-do list that you need, and you say, amen, please. Okay? If God has already spoken in the Old and the New Testaments, prayer is actually answering God. Do you see that? Think about it. If he's already spoken to us, we're not starting the conversation. I appreciate the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, look... What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. The first word is God's word. We're never the first word. We're never the primary word. What's critical is that we speak to God who speaks to us. And the scriptures train us in that conversation. Isn't that fascinating? All of a sudden we don't have to mix. We, we actually get to mix these two separate tasks that most of us have. Okay? We have, like, whether it's daily or when we get a break in our schedule, we've got praying and we've got Bible study. And sometimes they coincide, but they never mix. Like, sometimes, like, you know, when I was a kid with syrup and pancakes or meat and mashed potatoes. But what does it look like to actually mix those together? And all of a sudden, reading Scripture becomes listening to God. And all of a sudden, praying becomes sitting in the questions and the comments that God makes about our lives. Then think about it even further. What does it look like to reply to God's comments and questions with our own questions? With praise, or maybe with confession, or maybe with thanks. It would look just like a relationship with another person. Right? In some ways. And this leads to our second point of application. God speaks to us personally and relationally through Jesus' his son. Okay? He speaks to us personally and relationally with, through Jesus His Son. Jesus is not a huge crowd of long-dead sages and prophets. That's the point of verse 1. Jesus is the one who is speaking to us, and he's relatable to us because he became a human being. He's personable because he's a person. okay? But he's also the eternal and infinite God, so he can relate to all of us at once and forever. He doesn't die. Unlike every other one of the speakers before him. You see, God didn't just want to write us a letter. He didn't want to just like airdrop the Bible on us, like leaflets from the sky, right? All right, guys, hit and run. I'm done. See you later. I'm going to go hang out in heaven, play freeze tag with the angels. Okay, that's not what he's doing. God sent his son. Jesus became a human being. He entered into our joys. He entered into our troubles. Not like a paratrooper, army crawling through, Defeating evil this way and that way, but like a nurse, like a longtime friend who gets it. I want you to think about it this way. Imagine the difference between just a letter and a visit. Do you see the difference between that? You're sick or you're sad. And you've been sick and you've been sad for a long time. And a good friend of yours who lives far away sends you a get well card. And that's touching, right? That's sweet. But imagine if that same friend canceled her plans, took days off of work, booked a costly airline ticket, and came just to sit with you. Just to sit with you and make really off-color jokes and to laugh with you about life and to weep with you. And that's exactly what all the lawyers and all the doctors couldn't do for you. Isn't a visit sweeter than a card? Right? Isn't a visit from heaven, from someone who actually can heal us, sweeter than a friend's inside joke? And I think that's what this passage is getting at. Jesus speaks into our being. Okay, so of course, we're already getting ahead of ourselves. That's my usual. Because Jesus' personal visit is exactly what God is speaking about in this passage, right? He's talking about Jesus coming to earth and becoming like us and dying for us. We see this in verse 3. There, Jesus is called the exact imprint of God's nature. The exact imprint of God's nature. In, in the Greek, the word the exact imprint is a one word, and it literally means Character. So Jesus is God's character for everyone to see, smell, and touch. For us to, see, to hear and to see through scripture. Okay. Jesus of Nazareth shows forth God's love, shows forth God's nature, shows forth God's glory. That's huge. But verse 3 also tells us that Jesus not only speaks to tell us about himself, he speaks to hold the very universe together. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. And that's point two on our outline, and I'm going to make it really brief. Trust me, okay? So I want you to think of it this way. Imagine the Hubble telescope for a second, okay? You get pictures of swirling universes, the universe is swirling outward, galaxies are swirling outward, and the roughest estimate I've got is 27.4 billion light years wide. billion light years enormous, Okay? And then, all of a sudden, you see that, okay? And then, now imagine the Large Hadron Collider in Europe, okay? On a sub level, you see shards of small, small matter, 10 to the 35th meters wide, negative 35th meters wide. That's super small and super big, right? And that's all I've got in terms of science. I'm spent, okay? I had to look that up. It took me 30 minutes. (laughs) I'm done, (laughs) okay? The point is not to sit there and say, oh, how wonderful, okay? Great, God, okay? Now, the point is to say that Jesus' words calls all of that immensity and all of that detail to task. Like, think about a master with a dog going, one clipped word, and the dog was right to his heel. That's what Jesus is doing with the universe. That's the description going on in this verse. And now, look, I hope that my description alone would convince you that I think these are compatible, that science and supernatural are compatible, that you know, there's not some big kind of collision, there's not some big sort of lightning bolt between the two, and they're, they're fighting. That's just media fiction from the 19th century. But, you know, all the science developed out of the Middle Ages cathedral schools, so I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. But look, here's the deal. I that's not what the passage is focusing on. That's cool. That's interesting. I'd love to talk to you about it one-on-one. Maybe in another passage we'll chat about it. But that's, the passage is really concerned to say that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is deeply personally involved He's interacting with every part of the universe, especially human beings. And he's not just bearing the load. He's not just some sort of like Greek atlas. Right? He's not just stooped over and it's got a giant universe in his back. He's carrying it somewhere. He's ordering it somewhere. That's the language of this passage. Where is he carrying it and where is he ordering it to? He's carrying it and ordering it. He's sustaining it so that it might be restored. You don't, we don't get this, but time and space are on the move. Not just outward, not just downward, okay? but on the move in a, in a progress sort of way. okay? Not like life's getting better, poverty's diminishing, but in the sense of eventually, eventually injustice will become justice. Violence will become peace. Isolation will become communion. Because Jesus has done this And really beautiful thing that verse 3 is at pains to tell us. He's made purification for sins. And that's why sustaining the universe is not just a static process. Everything's going to finally be put right because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And that leads to the third and final point, Okay? Third and final point is Jesus scrubs us and everything else clean. That's, you can look at your outline for that. Okay, The description of Jesus in verses 3 and 4 at the heart of Christianity is really just the news, the gospel, the good news. Okay, and It just says this, By giving up himself to death, destruction, and duplicity on a cross 2,000 years ago, King Jesus conquered death, destruction, and duplicity once and for all. And then by rising from the grave and going up to heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father, he's declaring that his victory is final. Justice has been established. Peace is accomplished. So much so that he can say, it's finished. Okay? In other words, Jesus did something public and historically verifiable and attested, and the universe is spinning in all of its immense detail towards a happy ending. That's what this verse is saying. That's what this passage is saying. Okay? But I want you to get this that Jesus' death is more than just what a broad cosmic sweep would tell. It's got a very personal dimension, a very individual reality. And this comes in that word purified, purification. Okay? In the Greek, you have this word, okay, and I'm going to try not to butcher it, okay, which means spiritually cleansing. With blood. It's catharismos. And it's from the Old Testament. It means sprinkling with blood to purify. It's a very visceral physical image. He's saying, I've got to give my life. Jesus is giving his life shown by blood for our lives. Why? Why the sacrifice? Because if we're honest, we know we're in trouble. We know we're in trouble. Late at night, sometimes even early in the morning, we realize we're failing at what actually matters. We worry, worse, we're drowning in what actually matters. We're drowning in our failures. I don't know if you feel this, but we're head over heels in secret habits and tendencies that are lock and key, secret from even ourselves are desperately afraid that someone will know who we really are. And so, and the grit of this dirt is under our fingernails and between our teeth, and there's no amount of community service that can work it out. There's no amount of compliments that can make us feel better. We're stuck, and the more we rely on ourselves, the more we rely on our intelligence, the more we rely on our gifts, our attractiveness, or even our work ethic, the more stuck we get. And this is why we need something offensive and ancient. We need blood. Blood. We need something outside of ourselves, shockingly outside of ourselves. We need Jesus' blood. We need another life. I love the way that writer Walker Percy puts it. He says, in the end, it's precisely this preposterous remedy, it and no other, which is specified by the preposterous predicament of the human self as its sole remedy. I realize that's a lot of peas and that's really complicated, so let me just summarize it here. We need the ridiculous remedy of Jesus' blood because our predicament of self-help, that is, the trying to change ourselves, is so ridiculously ineffective. If you're a big enough fool, Percy continues, to climb a tree and like a cat refuse to come down, Then someone who loves you has to make a big fool of himself to rescue you. Okay? That's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, maybe he didn't climb a cosmic tree, except it's a cross, okay? But he won by losing. He defeated destruction. How? By being destroyed. Jesus' love is supposed to seem foolish. Do you get that? Why? How else could he rescue a fool like me? I'm going to try to tie this all together with a story about a story, and then I'm done. Okay? Millie, um, one of my favorite things in my day is to put my two-year-old girl to bed. I know this is so relevant to your life. Okay. Uh, Let me describe. Millie's two years old. She has big blue eyes. Okay. She's got curly blonde hair, and she's got a pretty easy laugh, which makes it fun to be her dad. Okay. And, but almost every night we have the same interaction, Millie and I do. I go, Millie, it's time to go to bed. And she goes, no. Okay. And, I, and I, she digs at her heels, so I say something like, do you want to read a book? And she goes, yeah. And so we go up to the third floor, we pick out a book or two, And we read. And one of my favorite books that I get to read to Millie is Guess How Much I Love You. Familiar with this classic tale? It's made of heavy-duty cardboard that's borderline indestructible. Okay, and it's about little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. Okay, and let me tell you the story if you're not familiar with this literary classic. Little nut brown hair decides late one afternoon to tell big nut brown hair something really important. He grabs his ears and he says, I've got something important to tell you. And he says, guess how much I love you. And big nut brown hair kind of shyly backs away and says, oh, I don't think I could guess that. And so little nut brown hair takes the challenge up, takes the mantle of the challenge, and tries to show big nut brown hair how much he loves big nut brown hair. And so he stands on a stump and he stretches his arms as wide as he can. He says, I love you this much. And then he stretches as high as he can with his hands and then his feet. And he says, I love you this much. And then he hops as high as he can and says, I love you this much. Okay, And he points as far as he can see to the river and then to the moon and says, I love you that much. But each time, big nut brown hair replies by saying that his love is bigger. It's a fascinating story. So Big Nut Brown Hair is like squashing his ego every time. He so he stretches farther because he's taller. He jumps higher because he's bigger, right? And little Nut Brown hair is just so disappointed. (laughs) Okay? And then Big Nut Brown Hair, love always points farther, right? He can always see farther because he's got better eyes. And then he says, I love you to the moon and back, which is just smarter. And so a little nut around here is again at a loss, okay? And I I guess what I want to say is the purpose of Hebrews chapter 1 and this passage is the reason that God inspired a human being to write Hebrews is the exact same as the purpose of Guess How Much I Love You, the book, okay? Most of us think that Christianity is showing God how much we love him. Look, we're like little nut brown hair. We stretch out our little arms as wide as they'll go. We reach as high in the sky as we can. We point to the very reaches of the ever expanding galaxy, 27.4 billion light years. Okay? And so we think we, and so, but then we don't think it's enough. And so we try to find better stretches or higher stumps or better ways to see farther in order to show God or maybe its friends or family just how much we love just how good we are at loving. But you know what? God replies that his love is bigger. His love is bigger. Jesus stretches wider on the cross. He ascends higher into the heavens, to the very right hand of God. And he points deeper to the truths of his word to us. You see, the reason that the letter to the Hebrews starts with a theology lesson is not to bore us. It's to tell us we need to look at the world from God's perspective. Like little nut brown hair, we need to see a bigger love. We need to see that Jesus is bigger, even, than our struggle to believe. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for these folks, their attentiveness to your word, um, which is challenging. It's challenging to think about your word. It's challenging to think about the universe. It's challenging to think about all the things that um, you'd have us to believe. And I pray that you would, just the takeaway would be, you're not smashing egos. You're just stretching your arms. You're not telling us we can't. You're telling us you can. And I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of that grace. There's no mistake we can make that will bar us from your presence. Because Jesus has died and He did something very barbaric. He shed his blood. And I pray that we wouldn't forget that and that we would treasure that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.